From Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we're talking about movement. Our first guest is a scientist whose recent work is helping us understand the way the world's largest animal moves its body. Our second guest is a researcher whose recent studies uncover the way animals are moved as part of a complex global trafficking network. The morphological physiologist and the migration ecologist, that's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. I'm pretty impressed by blue whales. I mean, these are not just the largest animals on our planet. They're the largest animals to ever live on our planet. And they're here with us right now. And yet there's so much about blue whales that we don't know. And that starts with the way they move through the ocean. We're going to be talking about that today, and then we're going to stay in the ocean, but look at a very different issue, the complex global networks that have been established for the trafficking of marine wildlife. Oh yeah, things are about to get pretty heavy. Joining us today by phone from Westchester University in Pennsylvania, where he is a professor of biology and the head of the Liquid Life Lab is Frank Fish. His team's recent study in the journal Integrative and Comparative Biology reveals a surprising complexity in the underwater maneuverability of the world's largest animal. Frank, I'm glad you could be with us today. Oh, I'm very glad to be here. Also joining us on the line from the Monterey Bay Aquarium in California is Emily Miller. She was the first author on a recent study in the journal Scientific Advances that cultivated 150 years of tortoise shell transactions to better understand the trade in critically endangered hawksbill sea turtles. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Let's start today. With the Academy Award winner for Best Original Song in 1989, which was a joyful romp through the ocean, where cartoon versions of a host of marine animals spin and turn and dance in ways that, well, the real versions can't. But if you were indeed to spend some time under the sea, you might be surprised to see the ways in which these creatures do move. And that's the subject matter of a recent study by the very aptly named Frank Fish. Frank, let's talk about the way a lot of people think about blue whales, and in particular, the way many people assume that they move. Before you understood this, if you pictured a blue whale under the ocean, how did you see it swimming merrily along? Well, when we think of a a blue whale, we think of this sort of monstrous organism that just sort of swims around in a straight line because it's just so large. I mean, much bigger than school bus. And so we have this perception that these things are not very maneuverable. That is, they, they can't turn tightly and also they can't quite do anything really rapidly. And that's sort of a mistaken preconception that we have. In reality, these creatures, well, they're sort of gloriously flexible, right? That's what you found in your recent study? That's right. We basically showed by putting tags on the animals. So these are these suction cup tags with cameras on them as well as accelerometers that the animals are fairly maneuverable when they dive. And actually, as they're hunting, as they're looking for food, they'll actually spin around on their long axis, what we call roll. Now, I want to get to the the simple maneuvers that you and your collaborators identified. But first, I want to ask about these tags. How do we get these things on blue whales? Because my understanding is blue whales, as big as they are, they're not that easy to find in the ocean. 
I mean, they are large, but you can find them if you know where to, to look in particular. One particular place is Monterey Bay uh, off of California, and then it's simply a matter of going out on boats. And what you do is you look for the blow of the animal, that is when it exhales, and then you try and pull up as close as you can to the whale. And then on a long fiberglass pole, we have a tag that we then slap down onto the whale when it comes up to breathe. And hopefully the tag then sticks and the whale will take it around for uh, some period of time. And these are on suction cups, so they stay there for a while and then they, they pop up and they're recollected, is that right? Right. These suction cup tags work very well and are not harmful at all. So the tags will remain on for a period of time, maybe 6 to 12 hours. And then eventually it pops off on its own and there's a transmitter. And then we have another boat that will go out and actually find that tag. And that's where the, the, the math part of the science comes in, right? You guys start to evaluate how these tags have been moving through the ocean, how the animals have been moving. And when you do and you compile all the data, you saw that blue whales, they employ a few simple maneuvers that can be combined into more complex motions, right? Think of it this way. Think of it like, um, like an airplane. So you have sort of three rotational movements. One is roll, which is when you spin around on your long axis, such as a plane when it's banking. Another would be what we call yaw, and that is sort of moving from side to side. And the last is pitch, and that is sort of moving up and down. Those are being recorded on the whale, so we have an idea how the whale is moving in a three-dimensional world. We can also figure out from the amount of jiggle that the tag has due to the flow over the whale, how fast the whale is moving. And so we can get a pretty good idea then of how that whale is moving in that three-dimensional space. You've spent quite a bit of time in your career looking at the hydrodynamics of whales and other marine mammals. Why does this matter? What can we learn from this? The numbers of whales have been really decimated due to whaling. So the numbers of whales have gone down. If we understand the biology of the whale and also their food resources, we can get a better view of how many whales we can actually carry in the oceans. A good example of this are the gray whales were brought down from their historic levels, and it's now calculated based upon the availability of their food. Currently, we're looking at the die-off of a number of gray whales, and the feeling is, is that they've reached their carrying capacity. That is, the environment can only hold so many of these whales, and that maybe they're reproducing more than are available. And this is still being looked at. So understanding how whales can move through the space that they have helps us understand their capacity to be, well, I guess, packed into that space, right? Right, and how they can find their food and, and whether they're able to utilize that resource. But there are other things that we can also get from examining how whales move, where we actually apply what we learn from the animals to engineered devices, such as autonomous underwater vehicles. Having spent some time examining the world's largest animal, what would you like to learn next about these creatures? We're trying to figure out if the whales and their capacities are limited by their size. 
So a big question is, why do we have blue whales as the biggest whales? Why aren't there bigger whales than even blue whales? And then what are the limitations in terms of the way that they move? These are questions then regarding evolution and the limitations that you have when you go along some type of morphological anatomical trajectory. That's Frank Fish, whose recent study in the journal Integrative and Comparative Biology reveals a surprising complexity in the underwater maneuverability of the world's largest animal, the blue whale. Frank, uh, can you stick around for a little while and chat with our next guest at the end of the program? Oh, sure. I'd love to. You might know the Monterey Bay Aquarium as a place to take the kids to get a peek at all kinds of amazing sea life when you're vacationing on the California coast. And it is. But there is a tremendous amount of scientific study being done there, too, including new research that uncovered the historic tortoiseshell trade routes that may have established the groundwork for contemporary global trafficking networks of all kinds. Emily Miller, if you would ask me what the best way to understand present-day animal trafficking was, I probably wouldn't have said that you should start looking at records from 150 years ago. So what made you and your team want to look at this issue through that lens? Well, first we wanted to learn just how many turtles were killed for the tortoiseshell trade. And that led to us looking at this historical data. And once we started looking at it, we realized that there were a lot more patterns that were interesting and emerging um, from who the trade partners were, who was shipping these tortoiseshell parts and who was receiving them, who was importing them. This wasn't just a biology problem and it wasn't just a history question. This was a math problem, too, particularly when it came to trying to figure out the total number of turtles that were killed based on the parts of those turtles that were being traded. Can you talk a little bit about that? So if you have a box full of tortoiseshell parts, these are the scutes, the pieces of shell that make up the carapace, the back of the tortoise. Uh, sorry, the turtle. <laughs> a bit of a misnomer. Tortoise shell, it comes from hawksbill sea turtles. And if you have a box full of these scutes, it could be one large sea turtle or it could be many juveniles. So we just didn't really have a handle on how many turtles produced a given size of tortoise shell. Our team had to go through some stranded specimens, sea turtles that had washed up on the shore, died from various reasons, and figure out what the relationship between the size of the overall turtle and the size of the tortoiseshell, the scutes that that turtle produces. And you just mentioned that the hawksbill turtle was the turtle that you were looking at in particular. Can you describe these turtles and talk a little bit about why they are so prized? Tortoiseshell has been used for all sorts of things like guitar picks, combs, decorative inlay, and it all just comes from the hawksbill sea turtle. So there's several species of sea turtle, but only the hawksbill has this beautiful mottled pattern, the brown and black speckled tortoiseshell pattern. And the other sea turtles, they either have more brittle shell or they don't have this pattern, this, the hawksbill do. So it's really the beauty of their shell on their back has really been their, their curse for the hawksbill sea turtle. Previous estimates had suggested that that curse accounted for the harvesting of like 1.5 million hawksbills over the years. Your group decided that was probably a bit off. Actually, it was, it was quite a bit off, right? Yes, that's right. Previous estimates were a little over a million hawksbill sea turtles were thought to be harvested for the tortoiseshell trade. Um, and our estimate is closer to 9 million 
previous estimates used the assumption that all sea turtles harvested were just the same exact size. Um, and we looked at some current shipments to see what size actually were harvested. And we also had a lot more data. One of our co-authors on the paper um, is a professor in Japan, and he was able to get some previously unpublished customs data that showed tortoise shell trade records, not just going back the pa- to the 1950s, which is what was previously known, but going back 150 years. So we added another almost 100 years worth of data. This 9 million turtle figure, it's its pretty staggering. And I, I'm going back and forth on how to kind of process that. On the one hand, I think, well, this is horrible, horrible news. I mean, like there were more than 9 million of these things in our oceans, and now they're on the brink. And that's really bad news. And then maybe on the other hand, it's kind of good news too. These turtles have actually survived an even greater calamity than we previously thought. I I don't know how to think about this. How do you think about this when you think about that number, that huge, huge number? Yeah, it's a huge number and it's over a long time period. So it is hard to think about what that means. If you divide it by year over those 150 years, that means about 60,000 turtles harvested every year. And that's a lot when we don't have great estimates of what the current population is. One of the most recent estimates in the early 2000s was that there were 20 to 24,000 females nesting annually. So if we think about only 20,000 females nesting annually with this estimate of 60,000 were removed every year, if we average it across the 150 years, um, that's pretty staggering. You found a strong link between traditional trade routes and modern illegal fishing patterns. Why is that important? We were wondering, so what explained these patterns of trade that we were seeing? And so we looked at Hawksbill Habitat Coral Reef Area, and that didn't really predict the turtle exports that were being shipped out of each country. And we found that the area a country has in their exclusive economic zone, where they're sovereign over fishing rights, um, did not predict illegal fishing rate in that area. And so it wasn't just that countries are having this harder time enforcing fishing in these larger coastal areas. It had to be these historical, economic, and political aspects of trade that were influencing these relationships. So these were long-standing trade routes and issues of governance that are driving these patterns. And this can really help us as we look at you know, developing global policies that will protect these animals and, and help us get a handle on illegal fishing, not just of, of turtles, but of all kinds, right? That's right. So often these issues of enforcement are handled in different agencies uh, with different jurisdictions. And our research shows that really illegal fishing and wildlife trafficking need to be managed and handled together. And this study focused on turtle shells. What else would you like to look at? Tortoise shell has an issue in that it can be disaggregated from the animal and then stockpiled for years, so it's very hard to trace. And a similar wildlife product would be shark fins that also can be dried and stored for many, many years, which makes understanding the trade of it and the source of where they came from and how then we can better manage this issue all the more difficult. That's Emily Miller. She was the first author on a recent study in the journal Scientific Advances that cultivated 150 years of tortoiseshell transactions to better understand the trade in critically endangered hawksbill sea turtles.
Hey, Emily, there's someone I'd like you to meet. Is that okay? That's great. Okay. Emily, this is morphological physiologist Frank Fish. And Frank, this is migration ecologist Emily Miller. Hello. Hi, Frank. I have to say I'm quite envious. You're associated with the Monterey Bay Aquarium. It's one of my favorite spots on Earth. It's just really a marvelous place that I come and visit very often. Sounds like you've done a, a fair bit of research here as well. I haven't done work on, on sea turtles per se, although I'm a bit involved with a researcher who's building a biomimetic sea turtle robot. Really? And so, uh, yeah, so I'm sort of interested in the, in the turtles themselves from that standpoint, as well as also their conservation. I teach a course in marine biology, and so sea turtles are up there on uh, sort of one of the main organisms. With, with that, is there sort of a, a growing trade in sea turtles? I mean, poaching because of sort of changes in the demographics and certain countries are becoming a bit more prosperous? Most of the data we were able to look at was up until the international ban of sea turtle trade in 1992. And it's hard to know the trends since then. We were able to get some data from U.S. Fish and Wildlife to look at seized shipments that were coming into the U.S. And we couldn't get raw numbers, but we could see the countries that they were coming from. And trade is still very complex and involving many different countries just in the shipments that we were able to see that were intercepted, let alone all the shipments that make it through. So it definitely seems to be a significant problem today. Whether or not it's increasing or decreasing is really hard to say at this point. And are things like boat strikes important? I, I forgot to talk about this as another aspect of why we're also interested in whale maneuverability, because ship strikes are a major cause of mortality in whales, particularly certain species. So uh, do we have real problems with uh, ship strikes or boat strikes on these sea turtles? Uh, ships definitely do strike the sea turtles, but for hawksbill, targeted harvest is really the main driver um, because they're so valuable and desired that people going after them in often small artisanal fisheries then trade them to more international trade networks is the main issue. So with whales, there's pretty good protection internationally for direct harvest, or at least managed, but you would say ship strikes is really one of the main issues currently. The uh, North Atlantic right whales are particularly susceptible. One of their main feeding areas is right near Boston, and so the ship traffic goes through, and they've been known to, to strike a number of these whales, which tend to be more slow-moving than animals like blue whales. The less agile species are a little bit more vulnerable. Right. Part of the reason that they were considered to be the right whale back in the old days was, was simply because uh, they were slow moving. So when people were going out in boats that they had a row after the whales, they could catch up to the whale because it wasn't moving that fast. And then the other main reason they were right whales is because when you killed them, because they had so much blubber, they floated. They didn't sink. And because they had all that blubber, economically, they were quite valuable to the early whalers. So for the blue whales, you found that they were far more maneuverable than expected. How does their agility compare to much smaller marine mammals like dolphins, porpoises? 
Well, actually, if you're there in Monterey, and so you have access to one of the most maneuverable organisms in the sea, and that's the the California sea lion. They are highly maneuverable, far more maneuverable than dolphins. And part of that has to do with where their propulsive and control surfaces are, the, the sort of flippers that they have, and we've been investigating this for, for some time. And then also just the degree of their body flexibility. I mean, a sea lion can curl its body so that it could actually put its nose on its butt, and that's something that we can't easily do, and dolphins can't do at all. So sea lions can actually maneuver around very tightly and very quickly, far more so than dolphins. But then from dolphins, you go up to the larger whales, and they become less maneuverable in terms of the speed at which they can turn and also the size of the turn, with, with one exception, and that's the humpback whale, which has these enormous flippers. And that allows this animal to make very tight turns underwater, in the same way that a jet plane would bank and make a very tight turn in order to come in for a landing. Wow. Very cool. When you're studying how they move, are you able to calculate from how they move the energy that it would take them to move and then from there how much they need to eat to produce that energy? That's something that's being worked on. Uh, We haven't got numbers right at this time for how much energy it actually takes to do a turn. The thing with that is that these maneuvers are very quick, sort of unsteady types of motions, whereas a whale that's migrating, say a humpback whale migrating from Alaska to Hawaii or a gray whale migrating from uh, the Beaufort Sea above Alaska, down all the way to Baja, uh, there there's a huge amount of energy. But the type of foraging that these animals do, uh, we are starting to look at a little bit more closely and then actually put some numbers on how much energy they're actually expending as they go and uh, attempt to feed. Interesting. So if you can figure out how much they need to eat, you would be able to tell if they are reaching carrying capacity, like if they are food limited, as you mentioned, with the gray whale issue along the California coast? Right. But, you know, things are changing in the ocean. And because of climate change and ocean warming and the sea level rises, the prey availability may change. So, for instance, krill, which are a favorite food of animals like blue whales down in Antarctica, feed on algae that are associated with the ice packs. So as ice starts to melt a little bit precipitously, there may be less food available for the krill, which then will go and cascade to the whale. And so the whale may lose its opportunity for its food. Emily, is that a situation that's facing the hawksbill as well, the changing dynamics of food that come along with climate change and changing ocean temperatures and changing ocean levels? Yes, definitely. Um, So hawksbills are restricted to coral reefs, and they are omnivores. They consume sponges, and they allow coral reefs to grow. They really are um, ecosystem engineers. And as coral reefs are dealing with climate change um, that's having a cascading effect on all the 
organisms within the community. So it affects sea turtles and the lack of sea turtles in coral reef habitats that used to be there also affects coral reefs. So the hawksbills provide this service in shaping the coral reefs. And so there's a lot of feedback there. Um, And as climate change alters that feedback, uh, we don't really know what will happen. I know that like leatherback turtles will eat jellyfish, and that, that's sort of both good and bad. The, the number of jellies are increasing, but uh, these animals will also eat things like plastic that ends up in the ocean, and uh, that can be detrimental for them. Yes, definitely. Um, plastic is an issue that affects the, uh, hawksbill sea turtles as well. Um, they'll eat everything that's, that they can in the coral reef, so it, it is found in their bellies as well. And Frank, pretty famously or infamously, I should say at this point, that's a that's a big issue for whales too. There's been these really terrible, horrifying photos of whales that have been beached up, and the contents of their stomachs is just um, well, it's just it's it's terribly sad. Well, the amount of plastic in the ocean is a is a big problem, and it's not just the water bottles that you see floating around or, or something like that. It's uh, the microplastic too is getting into uh, fish. They're eating it and thinking it their eggs and such, and they're accumulating. And we don't know, at least for the microplastic, what the long term problems will be for various whales and dolphins, the eating of things like plastic bags, thinking that they're jellyfish and such, that is a real problem that can immediately affect the, uh, the organism, uh, essentially um, blocking its digestive tract or lining the stomach so that it can't absorb or fully digest material. We are just about out of time. Emily Miller, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you. This has been great. And Frank Fish, thank you. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed the uh, opportunity. We broadcast Undisciplined every Friday on Utah Public Radio, but if you miss us there or you live outside of Utah, you can catch us wherever you get your podcasts. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts, and our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. (laughs) 